0: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, post-match, and it is time for a preview of the 2022 Roland Garros men's final between Rafael Nadal and Casper Ruud. Nadal goes for RG number 14. I don't even remember, I know that there's like a nickname for for each one, like that comes from the Roman, I think it's Roman, right? Like the Dodecima and stuff, I, I don't even know what it is at this point. And also Major number 22. Rude, first major final. Congratulations to Kaspar, uh, regardless of what happens on Sunday. Um, it's going to be a good experience for him, obviously, win, uh, and also probably lose. It's going to be a great thing for his career that he gets to uh, experience a major final at the age of 23. I am going to uh, get into my keys to this match, how Nadal wins, how Rude wins, and then I will give you my pick. But I'll start by uh, just talking about what I've seen from each player throughout the tournament, beginning with Rafa Nadal. Let's go all the way back. He wasn't the favorite coming in. And that's not my opinion. That's what the odds said. Let's be honest about why. The foot and nothing else. Rafa started the year, won the Australian Open, undefeated until the Indian Wells Final you would think, okay, well, if that's what he was on hard court, certainly it's going to look really, really good on clay court. Unfortunately, had the rib injury, came back, was healthy in Madrid, wasn't healthy in Rome, and it was a concerning way to exit against Denis Shapovalov. That's why I wasn't the favorite. So uh, at the end of the day, we've reached the final, and Nadal's foot has... I don't know what kind of intervention there's been from cortisone shots and painkilling and and all the things, you know, the reasons why his doctor might be there, right? I don't know. Uh, But the important thing for him is that it has not hampered him. And that's why we're here with Rafa in the final. uh, Because other than that, it's just par for the course. Now, the technical aspect of his game has been, to me, on point all tournament long. The forehand looked incredible from the early rounds. The serve and return, very good. Until, really, the Zverev match. But I don't worry about that at all. I found those conditions to be rather borderline inhumane, sauna-like, and uh, I just thought, I throw that out the window because uh, I just think that the conditions made it impossible for either player to, to really play their best. That's how I saw the match. I know that some people uh, may have disagreed with, when they saw the match, but but that's what I saw. Uh, so so you can disagree all, all, all you want. But I just felt like until that match, uh, Nadal has looked great technically. Now the physical side. That's also been impressive. The Nadal... Uh, and the FAA and Djokovic matches back to back. In particular, the way his endurance held up, and the fact that he still had his full explosivity and strength in his legs throughout the duration, that was uh, that was a big deal for me. Not necessarily surprising, given what we saw in Australia, but but still impressive. And lastly, his confidence in the big moments has been obvious. And that is by far the most important thing about Rafa's tournament so far. Think about how well he played in the fifth set against Felix. I mean, that was a 10 out of 10 set. Think about how well he played in the tiebreak against Djokovic in the fourth. Nearly perfect. Think about how well he played. Think about the fact that he played the best points of the match against Zverev once he got down 6-2 in the tiebreak and beyond in that first set. I mean, Nadal is really trusting his game under pressure. That has been the most impressive thing. Besides his foot staying healthy, which has been the most important thing, the most impressive thing has just been how Nadal has risen to the occasion time and time again. As for Kasparud, he did prove me wrong. He proved me wrong. Uh, Now, to me, He really struggled early on in the clay court season, suffered losses to players outside the top 20 on numerous occasions in the lead-up, which is something that we hadn't seen from him at all in about two years' time. And then he came to Rome, he came to Geneva, Rome semis, Geneva final. For me, the results weren't enough, especially considering the quality of opponent, uh, for me to ignore his struggles leading up to that point, that was obviously a mistake on my end. And uh, I was also very much against him playing Geneva. I felt that was a bad decision. And and that might have also played into the fact that I was skeptical of Rude being able to play his best um, at RG. And I also had major questions about his return of serve, which he has emphatically answered in pretty comfortable wins over Hercoc and Chilich who pretty much bring as much heat on the first serve as anyone is going to. So, Root has been awesome. He has proven me wrong. I'm, I'm a fan of his, so I'm, I'm happy that he did. And um, he is very much a deservant final, especially considering how much he's improved over the last three years. We've seen it before our eyes. The, the physical strength and the legs and the serve and the big match confidence, which has really been a a process for him and a work in progress. With that being said, we also have to acknowledge the draw. I power ranked him eighth coming into this event. He hasn't played anyone above him in my French Open power rankings. He uh the the best player he played is Hubert Herkachu I had in my next out category, not even in the top 10. So, good draw. Rude takes advantage. Conquers the Mental Demons in the third round against Senego, which was key. And here we are. Nadal versus Rude. As far as tactical keys go, I want to start with how Nadal wins. I always start with the favorite. Well, all Rafa needs to do is put the most comfortable pattern he has into use. There is nothing Nadal would rather do than attack the righty backhand. He can can play with other baseline patterns. We see him change it up against Novak Djokovic, for example. Uh, But it's really uh, very much about attacking the righty backhand for most of uh, the players who are put in front of Nadal. And against Kasparud, this is obvious low-hanging fruit, uh, much more so than it is against a player like Alexander Zverev or Daniil Medvedev or Novak Djokovic, players who who I think present a unique challenge to Nadal because of how solid they are on their backhand side. Rude is not quite that guy. However, Nadal is going to have to attack the backhand in a very particular way. He can't expect to win the match just by sitting behind the baseline and hitting to the backhand and waiting for Rude to miss. That's not going to be viable and it's not going to happen. Rude's backhand is very slow, but it's got a lot of height and it's got a lot of topspin. And particularly on clay, it makes the backhand difficult to attack. The ball bounces high and on, you know, the ball is not very fast and Rude is always recovered to the middle. So it's not, it's not easy to attack a high, slow, heavy topspin shot on clay. It's just not, and that's why, on the surface, Rude can protect his backhand and he can just trade and, and wait for forehands. It's a very, very, um, it's a very easy thing to do. I mean, even like you think about what Ferrer did on clay with his backhand, how Ferrer managed his backhand on clay. Ferrer is going to go cross court and he's going to wait until he gets a forehand. Like that's it. Uh, and that includes chances to run around and hit an uh, invertido, as he'd say, or an inside out or an inside in forehand. Rude does the same thing. So you can have plenty of success on clay without being aggressive and offensive on your backhand. Uh, but l- what Nadal will do to attack the backhand is attack the net. Luckily for Nadal, he does that as well as any anyone. Serve and volley, serve plus approach, mid-rally net approaches. In every opportunity possible, Nadal needs to go to the rude backhand and come to net. And that is where a high, slow, heavy topspin ball goes from the least attackable ball to the most attackable ball. Rude doesn't hit passing shots very well on his backhand. He He is pretty good at getting the ball to dip down low which will bother any volleyer who's not very skilled. Nadal, being the elite volleyer he is, is going to be able to play good volleys even below his waist level, and that really requires opponents usually to hit good passing shots and uh, not something that Rude does very easily. Uh, Servant volley especially is always exposed with Rude's deep return position, and I'm curious to see if he'll change that up. Rude also has a tendency to slice his backhand when he's on defense. That will also give Nadal a chance to move forward. Uh, It'll give Rafa even less reason to hesitate on coming forward when he's able to get Rude in defensive positions on his backhand. So expect Nadal to live at the net on Casper Rude's backhand. Nadal also needs to make Rude think about his runaround forehand. Nadal has been excellent at this tournament on the counterattack. There have been key moments against Djokovic and Zverev, especially. Fourth set against Zverev. Uh, sorry, first set against Zverev, fourth set against Djokovic, with just massively clutch forehand counterattacks. Some of them passing shots, some of them not. But Nadal is amazing at this, especially on clay. Nadal is amazing at this because of his strength and precision when he's on the run. And when Rude runs around his forehand, he puts himself out of position. Most of Rude's run around forehands are going to be inside out. The open court becomes the forehand side. And Nadal has his de- his forehand down the line. You might say, Gil, Rude hits forehands inside out all the time against everyone he plays. So why is it any different against Nadal? Think about the difference. First of all, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but vast majority, maybe about 80%, maybe 90% of Rude's opponents are righty. So I want you to take the average righty backhand and imagine Rude hitting an inside-out forehand. And now you have the righty backhand on the run against Rude's very heavy forehand. Righty backhand on the run. Now replace that average righty backhand with Nadal's forehand and think about the difference in threat there is between the average righty backhand on the run down the line versus the Nadal forehand on the run down the line. The difference could not be larger. And that is why, while Rude can easily just run around his back end and hit inside-out forehands with complete freedom and no fear of leaving the open court against most opponents. It's just not the case against Nadal. It's going to be important for Nadal to execute that shot because if he does, it's going to make Rude even more hesitant and press even more when he does inevitably uh, put himself out of position to hit those forehands. And maybe if Nadal is good enough at executing this, Rude will actually accept more backhands than he normally would. We'll have to see. The last thing I want to talk about for Nadal is the mental component. It's very interesting in this case. First of all, on Rafa's side of things, second Sunday on Chatrier, it's different. I've never seen Rafa not perform in excellent manner um, in a Roland Garros final. He has never been pushed to five sets. He has never lost. So I can just leave it at that. But when it comes to Rude, he's 23 years old. In 2005, when Rafa won his first role on Garros, Rude was seven. Rude grew up a Nadal fan. He has watched Rafa dominate in these finals his entire life. He has never seen anybody beat Nadal in these finals. He is now that guy. He is now that guy. It's him. The guy who he's watched on TV lose for 15 years. Then there's the added factor of he attended Nadal's academy. And partially credits Rafa and Tony and the peop- the good folks at the RNA Academy. Sorry, just RNA. Um, otherwise, it would be Academy Academy. Um, he credits them partially for his rise and for helping them in his career. So there is a big brother, little brother dynamic here. And Rude is going to need to try to muster a Djokovic-level self-belief And he needs to be out for blood. And I'm slightly afraid that he's going to be a little bit human in this situation. It would be entirely understandable if Rude had a little bit of an inferiority complex in this match. But he's going to need to try to not have that. Mental side of things, huge advantage for Rafa. Now for how Rude wins. It's going to have to be a serve plus one bonanza for Rude, And it can be. He has one of the best in the business, top five easily, when it comes to serve plus one. Rude serve is one of the most improved components of his game. Actually, the most improved component of his game. It is deadly. It is underrated at this time. He hits his spots. He hits really big. And the second serve is especially impressive. Triple digits by Rude, oftentimes on the second serve. And Nadal's serve strategy on the first serve of standing deep and lofting high returns through the middle of the court is super effective against most players. Most players struggle uh, will struggle to generate pace off of a high looping return up the middle, and Nadal will get to neutral very easily. Rude is actually in that elite camp, that Nadal level uh, camp of forehand pace generation. And Rude will probably get a lot of first ball forehands given Nadal's Return position, and we'll see if Nadal, um, what the pace is like on Nadal's return. Maybe he'll up it um, if he thinks that's a good idea. But usually he's not concerned about hitting the return very hard. He's just concerned about depth and height and and spin, spin. topspin. Less so topspin, more depth and height. But uh, Rude actually has the unique ability on his forehand, probably, to actually do some serious damage off of these Nadal returns that are uh, are high and slow. And uh, again, even if you're looking at like a forehand of, of Djokovic, it's going to be hard if Nadal gets the depth on that for Djokovic's forehand to do plus one damage. But Rude is, is literally, I think, pretty much unmatched. I mean, Rude, Nadal, Berrettini team. I think that's the camp of, of guys where sometimes you hit a deep return on clay and it, it's it's a perfect return, but their forehands are big enough that it just doesn't really matter. So it's reasonable to think that Root is going to find plenty of plus one forehands and he needs to uh, do a lot of damage on it. And I think maybe he can. Uh, The second key is that... um, Righties, I think, realize now they need to keep Nadal under pressure on his backhand. Zverev did a phenomenal job of this early on in the semifinal with his cross-court angle forehands. And as we've discussed at length, it was a big key in Djokovic's win over Nadal in last year's semifinal. Rude has the weight of shot. I also think Dominic Team has done this quite well in a lot of the best of three wins he's had against Nadal. Rude has the weight of shot on his forehand to keep Nadal in jail. In that corner. And what, the reason weight of shot is very key is if you don't hit the ball very hard uh, and heavy or on an extremely sharp angle, Nadal will very simply pattern change down the line or hit a heavy enough backhand cross court that suddenly you don't have the, the quality on your next forehand that is required. Uh, but I think Rude actually has the ability on his forehand to keep Nadal in backhand jail. That can be very effective against Rafa. And Nadal has looked somewhat shaky on his pattern-changing backhand down the line, particularly in the first set against Felix, where it was terrible. And uh, in the first set against Verev, where it was average to below average, his his backhand. So there have been moments. Rude needs to hope that he gets those moments. And I think uh, those are the two main dynamics that could favor Kasper Root. Now, let me go to my pick and my conclusion. Uh, First of all, I want to mention that Nadal did catch a break physically. That is going to be key. Uh, If Zverev won that second set in those borderline inhumane sauna-like conditions, which, I mean, I I don't know what to say, but I don't know if there's a solution, but the air circulation and the humidity level, um, I, I mean... It was pretty bad, um, but if Zverev won that second set, I think the match would have been taken. It would have taken it out of both players completely. Not to say that they would have had nothing left for the final, and they would have had no chance. But I'm pretty sure the match would have been decided based on which player hit empty first. And I think there's a high likelihood we would have seen cramps, and that's how the match would have ended because uh, there is a limit to what a human being can do. And I'm pretty sure Nadal and Zverev were quickly approaching that limit. So. That was a break, and that's going to be key. I like Nadal's advantages in this match better. They seem much more likely to pan out. You know, you could see Nadal's return, uh, keeping Rude's serve plus one at bay. Uh, you could see Nadal being able to kind of keep out of that backhand jail effectively and and control more of the points and not let Rude really execute that pattern on a regular basis. I feel like Nadal's advantages seem like more of a sure bet that they're gonna pan out. I also have concerns about Rude's resume. He's five and sixteen in his career against top ten players. It's not good. And uh even like an Andre Rublev who I would compare Rude to in this case. Rublev is a player who has beaten lower level competition on a very impressively consistent basis and is clearly a top 10 player. And Rublev has a reputation of coming up a little bit short against the very best in the world, but even Andre has three times the number of top ten wins that Rude has. Rublev is fifteen and twenty four, a better record. Again, Rude is five and sixteen. And uh, at the end of the day, pre tournament, I would have been very confident that if Nadal made the final, that he would ultimately win. And after seeing the Fortnite play out, I am still there. My pick is Nadal in three. Hope you enjoyed uh, the match, everybody, and hope you enjoyed this video. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, And everywhere else, podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you, the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hey, everyone. Gil Gross here. Post-match Iga Shviantek versus Coco Goff. 2022 Roland Garros final. If you're not here for spoilers, click off the video in 3, 2, 1. Iga has capped off one of the great runs of all time with the Roland Garros title, her second ever major. It is now a 35-match win streak. She passes Serena, she ties Venus, She's three away from passing Hingis, which would make it the longest win streak by any player after 1990. And it's another dominant scoreline. It is 6-1, 6-3 for Iga. So she goes the whole tournament, dropping just one set. I, uh, I want to spend most of this post-match video talking more about Sviantec and what we're seeing right now and what makes her great and not breaking down what was a pretty uncompetitive match. But I will begin just talking about the Sviantec versus Goff dynamic in this match. And as I suspected, the first thing I have to talk about is just the disparity in forehand effectiveness and especially the the struggles that Coco had to just keep that side consistent and in the court. As I suspected, Iga's weight of shot and intensity was just a little bit too much for Coco's forehand to handle. Here you have a forehand that is hit with an extreme grip with an extremely long swing path. And both of those two things don't lend itself well to pace absorption. And she just requires a little bit more time on her forehand. As I talked about in the preview, the clay actually provides that. But with Iga hitting faster and heavier and taking the ball early, the ball's coming quicker than what she would be dealing with against any other player. It kind of negates the effect of the clay. And it... Just looked like Goff's forehand was often rushed, caught it late all the time, and uh, it was uh, it was an issue for her. Along with the obvious effect of the tension and the nerves, especially in the opening couple games, when Goff's forehand was particularly problematic for her. And the stats in the end end up being uh, four winners to fourteen unforced errors on the Coco forehand. For reference, frame of reference, Iga was six to five. Coco actually won the returns in play battle, as I suspected. I I thought that that was going to be her best chance to be competitive in the match was to get a lot of free points, and she she actually did do that. It, it was really just how lopsided things were once Iga got the returns in play that kind of doomed Coco in this match. Um, so she actually did get more free points than Iga just by a slim margin. And uh, as a result, the the only rally length that she ended up winning was the one to two shot rally length. And if you throw in Coco's double faults, if there were three of them, were there more though? That seems low. Hold on. Let me check the stats. For some reason, I thought I read three, but I feel like there were more. Uh, no, only three. I don't know if they came kind of in big spots, but uh, okay. Anyway, you throw those in, and I think the the breakdown is is pretty close in terms of rally length one to two shots. It was really just after that uh, where Sviantec on the Coco serve ended up winning total points when she got the return in play, 29 to 14. And uh, part of that is also plus one and how the advantage of Coco's serve pretty much goes away right away. She, she's not good enough, especially on the forehand side, of taking that first ball and being aggressive with it and using the, the serve parlaying that into an advantage in the point. You know, it's, it's kind of... Uh, her, the forehand isn't at the level that, that Igas is at, where if you leave a return short from Svantec's serve, she has a forehand that is going to utterly uh, destroy you, and that is going to be the end of things. Coco doesn't have that on the forehand, which, which means that the advantage that she gets from her serve, it dissipates once the return is in play, pretty much. She did have some nice plus one moments, I thought, actually on her backhand. But um, it's a little bit less consistent uh, compared to Iga. Um, But uh, 25 of Coco's points won uh, on serve. She she won 25 of them. 11 of them were on unreturned serve. So a pretty large portion of the points that she won were just off of unreturned serves. And a couple of them were actually with help from Iga on second serves in particular. Uh, In the first set, I thought Sviantek missed too many second serve returns, uh, left some some couple points on the table. As crazy as that sounds in a 6-1 set, I think it is true. And that's really all I want to say uh, about the match. It Again, Coco's just not really on Iga's level right now. Um, and then general words about Goff before I get to Iga. I don't really worry about her. She's 18. She has a ton of experience already, which is going to... Just give her a leg up as her career rolls on. Um, to be 18 and to already feel like a veteran, which she absolutely does, is uh, is pretty unique and pretty great. She's got such a good head on her shoulders. Attitude, so good. Uh, as a competitor, so good. Maturity, dealing with off-the-court stuff, awesome. So it's really hard to worry about her, especially given the level that she's already at. It basically means that her floor... In her career is is just sky high there's really very little chance that she is not going to be a a mainstay uh in the top 10 as she's knocking on the door here the question is is she going to be is she going to be even better than that and that's going to depend on polishing some of the technical deficiencies that she has i think the biggest thing is the forehand and uh, I, as I said even before this match, I, I hope she does make some pretty drastic changes long-term um, to that forehand whenever she has the time to do that, perhaps in the offseason. That's, that's my hope for her. I think it'll help her. I can't see it really getting worse by, by attempting that. And uh, also perhaps some, some room for improvement on the second serve, but that's a shot that's really gotten a lot better over the years. She's also just an incredible athlete. She has a wonderful backhand. I, I'm not worried about Coco at all. I Just long-term, I have very little concern. So this should be a good experience. It, it'll help her next time she's in a major final because that's how this works. You know, what, once you lose like 3-4, then it starts to, I think, be counterproductive to even be in them. And then you start to have a lot of mental baggage. But to lose your first as a heavy underdog to Iga, no big deal. It's going to help her next time she's in the same spot. Sviantek, where to start? The most impressive thing about Iga is definitely her mental, at least to me. I didn't even talk about it before the match. I didn't even say, like, oh, can 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 Iga handle the pressure? A lot of pressure, major final, heavy favorite, uh, 34 match wins in a row. I, I didn't even bring it up. What does that tell you? I didn't bring it up because everything we've seen from her just suggests that The pressure is not a big factor here, which is crazy. So abnormal. I mean, I thought she was going to start to feel it when Ash retires and she becomes number one. And suddenly it's like, okay, Iga's supposed to win every tournament she plays, which is huge. And and it happened very quickly. There was no easing into that kind of alpha favorite role. It was suddenly her, and it, it just didn't phase her. Now, she hadn't played a major this might have been, I think, a, a different level of stress. In fact, there were moments like in the Junction-Wen uh, match where it looked like it was a different level of stress trying to win this major. But all things considered, quarterfinal, no complications. Semis, no complications. Final, no complications. I mean, she's just, she's just not really feeling the weight of the expectation as much as any regular player would. So Daria Abramovic, I mean, you have to bring her up and she is uh Svantec's mental coach. She is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in performance and sports. She worked with uh, the Polish cycling and swim teams before she worked with IGA and Sviantek has been working with her since 2019, which is notable because, first of all, Iga was a teenager. Second of all, she wasn't even really, I don't think, in the top 50 at the time. So, money is tight, presumably. And, most players just do not invest in that at that advanced period. But, that is the period of time where you are developing your habits, that you are forming your, again, kind of your career and getting used to what life on tour is going to be like. And in those formative years, it has to be hugely beneficial to have someone who is pushing you to do all of the right things. And I think the trust that Iga has in that relationship and the techniques that they have developed and the trust Iga has in those techniques and the habits they've built – I mean, you can't say enough about the effect that that has likely had on Sviantec's ability to handle all of this. Now, some of these habits and techniques are off-the-court stuff. Some of them are on the court, such as how she meditates on changeovers, what she does in between points. All of these things are carefully measured, and players need to look at that and take some notes and consider doing what Iga has done. Bringing on a high-level sports psychologist early before you think you quote-unquote need one, do it. Because it's probably a great competitive advantage, has been with Iga. Um, I also want to just talk about uh, the forehand it's probably the best shot in women's tennis. No, it is the best shot in women's tennis right now. Uh, maybe on the fastest surfaces in the world, that it could be a little bit different and someone serve. But no, it, it pretty much is. You hear players talk about playing Sviantec. What do they say? Most of them say she plays like a man. It's like playing a guy. That's what most of them say. I know Pagula said that the other day. And I think what they're really referring to is what her forehand feels like and how scary that weapon is. A lot of WTA players can get their forehand speeds up in the 80s and the 90s, right on par with how fast ATP players hit their forehands. But usually the RPM isn't even close. They're hitting flat forehands that are comparable in speed, but they're just nowhere close in RPMs. And Iga is hitting a forehand With a level of spin and speed in combination that is just unparalleled. It gives her that high margin aggression that very few possess. High margin aggression is a term that I talk about a lot when I discuss Iga's idol, Rafa Nadal, who she is a massive fan of, who she has looked up to her entire life. Who I think she emulates to the extent that she has probably aimed to have a forehand as close to Rafa's as possible. And she's done a damn good job of achieving that. It's about racket speed mainly. That's what creates weight of shot. Now you have how heavy is your racket? How heavy are you as a human? What is your tension, your string technology? all that comes into play. But the main component is how fast are you swinging? And Iga has developed her racket speed on the forehand side in, in a way that I have not really seen any WT, any WTA player do so. And her forehand will probably have a permanent effect on where the bar is set, in elite women's tennis, because uh, players are going to need to push themselves to to get on her level, because it's a just a what she has right now is such a massive advantage over everybody else. The only the only thing players can do is start to ask a little bit more of themselves when it comes to what they're generating off that forehand long term, and uh, that's what will inevitably happen over time. But right now, Svontek's forehand is just on another level, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Iga has also embraced modern medicine in the physicality department. It's not just the mental stuff. She cares about her sleep. She cares about her diet. And she has, I think, the best movement on tour. So what's happened here um, in conclusion, I think there's definitely a locker room aura at this point from all of this. Everything that I've said here is something that obviously everybody has noticed in the locker room. And, you know, the score lines have a big effect, in my opinion. Uh, let me just read her her finals, her recent finals. And let's go since the 2020 Roland Garros final, when she beat Sonia Kennan. Uh, that was 6-4, six, 6-1. Six, then it was 6-2, 6-2, 6-love, 6-love, 6-2, 6-love, 6-4, 6-1, 6-4, 6-love, Six two six two six two six two and six one six three. Today, I can't imagine that players are not taking the court against Iga Swiatek, hoping that they don't get embarrassed, which is a terrible, terrible mindset to have. But it is human, because she is embarrassing so many of her competition on a match-to-match basis, how could you not be fearful that that is going to happen to you? And that aura is going to have an effect where not only does she bring a high level to begin with, it's going to make her opponents play worse. So that's a dynamic to, to look out for as she moves forward. Next up for Sriyantek, obviously the grass. Uh, The channel double will be a very exciting challenge for her. I was immediately excited after thinking about what was next uh, at the prospects and the intrigue involved in if she's going to be able to do that. It's one of the hardest things to do in tennis. Uh, The grass is going to give some of the players who serve bigger than her, which are plenty of players, a much bigger advantage than the clay would, which kind of neutralizes that effect. And it's going to be, I think, a a challenge for Iga that is going to deliver more suspense in general. And I'm looking forward to see if she can do it. But for now, congratulations to Iga and her fans on major number two and one of the most dominant clay court seasons, if not the most dominant clay court season I have ever seen. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.